0: Hello and welcome to ALERT, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. With the world facing yet another major economic downturn, we'll speak with York University political science professor and author David McNally to analyze the current situation. And with a number of Canadian provinces holding elections this fall, we'll speak with University of Manitoba professor David Camfield about the Manitoba race, and with Herman Rosenfeld about Battleground, Ontario.
0: the alert headlines for the week of September 29, 2011. Police arrested activists protesting the Keystone XL pipeline on Parliament Hill. Hundreds gathered on Monday to fight against the proposed pipeline that would run from Alberta to Texas. Arrests were made when demonstrators climbed over additional fences installed by police to prevent people from reaching center block environmentalists, union representatives, and Aboriginal leaders were among those who cited the harmful effects the pipeline would have on the earth and the health of human beings. Earlier this month, over 1,000 arrests were made over the course of a two-week protest against the Keystone Pipeline in front of the White House.
1: NDP immigration critic Don Davies is trying to prevent former U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney from entering Canada to promote his new book, Davies argues that Cheney's authorization and endorsement of waterboarding and sleep deprivation techniques break Canadian and international law. He has called on Immigration Minister Jason Kenney to enforce the law and not allow the former Vice President to enter Canada.
0: The Rideau Institute released a report condemning the Beyond the Border initiative between the U.S. and Canada, saying it will compromise the security and privacy of Canadians. The agreement is being touted as reducing red tape at the border, making it easier for the two countries to trade and increasing Canadian exports to the U.S. The report says Canada's potential economic benefit from this initiative could be incentive to break some of the country's privacy laws. James Laxer dismissed the justification for this initiative, saying that Canadian exports have dramatically increased from 2001 to 2008, and the recent decrease was the result of the 2008 economic crash, not post-9-11 security measures.
1: Occupy Wall Street protesters marching on Union Square in New York Clashed with police last Saturday. Dozens of protesters were arrested while others were subject to mace, protesters and witnesses say. A video posted on YouTube shows two women penned in a police barricade being sprayed with mace. Soon after, Hacker Collective Anonymous posted the name, phone number, and family details of the officer they believe to have sprayed the women. Occupy Wall Street protesters have been demonstrating since the middle of September, saying they will no longer tolerate the greed and corruption of the
0: 1%. Nearly one in four children under the age of six live in poverty in the U.S., according to a recent report released by the Carsey Institute. Since the recession began in 2007, the number of children living in poverty has increased by 2.6 million, with an estimated total of 15.7 million in 2010. The researchers who wrote the report argue that children under 6 living in poverty have been shown to experience educational deficits and health problems with effects that span the life course.
1: The Bolivian defense minister has resigned in protest against police violence used on protesters trying to prevent a highway being built through a rainforest preserve. Police fired tear gas into crowds, rounded up protesters, and physically forced them onto buses in order to break up the demonstration. In a letter to President Evo Morales, the former minister, Cecilia Chacon, said she cannot justify the measure when other alternatives existed. The highway, which has Morales' support, would run through parts of the rainforest that are home to three different Amazonian groups who have largely lived in isolation for hundreds of years.
0: Those are the alert headlines. Now for Around the Left for the week of September 29, 2011. The fourth annual Toronto-Palestine Film Festival runs from September 30th to October 7th, 2011. For information on films, times, and venues, go to tpff.ca.
1: On Sunday, October 2nd in Ottawa at 7 o'clock p.m., attend the Canadian Boat to Gaza Benefit Concert featuring David Rovich. The concert will be in the Alumni Auditorium at the University of Ottawa. For tickets... Go to Octopus Books at 116 Third Avenue. You can also email Danielle Blab at gmail.com for tickets at the University of Ottawa campus, or CPC at yahoo.ca for tickets at the Carleton University campus.
0: The fourth popular forum to resist the Conservatives will take place on Monday, October 3rd at 6.30 p.m. at the University of Quebec at Montreal. During the first three assemblies, ideas were exchanged on how to build a popular movement against the Conservative agenda, and a basis of unity for the network was adopted. The network aims to challenge the Conservative government through a series of actions over the next four years. For more information or to receive previous minutes, email prenon. S-L-A-C-A-P-I-T-A-L-E at riseup.net
1: On October 6, 2011, the war in Afghanistan begins the second decade. And also on October 6, thousands will begin the occupation of Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. to stop the machine and create a new world. Will you join the October 2011 coalition in this non-violent protest against the corporate and military machine? To sign the pledge or to help spread the word, check out October2011.org.
0: The CCPA Nova Scotia will be having its fourth annual gala fundraiser evening on October 6th at 6 o'clock p.m. at the Italian Cultural Centre in Halifax. Dr. Laura Penny, local best-selling award-winning author, social commentator, and university teacher, will be the guest speaker. Her talk, Sorry Kids, Your Future is Cancelled, will focus on the key environmental, social, and economic issues Nova Scotia needs to prioritize. For more information, email ccpans at policyalternatives.ca.
1: Canadian Dimension Collective member Saul Landau's new film, Will the Real Terrorist Please Stand Up, will be having its Canadian premiere at this year's Vancouver International Film Festival. The only Cuba-related film at the festival, it will be screening on Wednesday, October 5th, Friday, October 7th, and Tuesday, October 11th. The director will be present at the first two screenings for a Q&A session. The description of the film, details of the screenings, and online ticket sales can be found at www.viff.org festival.
0: The Third International Festival of Poetry of Resistance will take place October 14th to 16th in Toronto. A donation of $15 is requested for the admission ticket and dinner at the opening event on Friday. Otherwise, all events are free of charge. Saturday, will have an open mic night to welcome new participants. For more information, visit www.poetryofresistance.org or email resistancepoetryfest at yahoo.ca
1: Planet or Death Climate Justice versus Climate Change is a series of study sessions taking place in Toronto over the fall. Based on the ideas of the 2010 Cochabamba Conference, these study sessions aim to prepare for the December 2011 climate justice events in Durban, South Africa. The third session, Act on Climate Change or Ignore It, will take place on Sunday, October 16th in room 5280 at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. For more information, email boliviaclimatejustice at gmail.com or visit the blog org.
0: Class Dismissed, Capital's War on Workers and Democracy is the Parkland Institute's Fall Conference of 2011. It will take place November 18th to 20th at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. The conference will explore the current attack on workers and unions, the accompanying attack on democracy, and how capital is working to hinder real action to protect our common environment. For more information, please visit parklandinstitute.ca slash fallconference2011. That's all for Around the Left for the week of September 29th, 2011.
1: Professor David McNally, he is the, uh, a political science professor at York University and the author of, of the book Global Slump. I caught up with him while he was at the Radical Book Fair and DIY Fest here in Winnipeg. So David McNally... Uh, last time you were on alert you explained that the uh, the, the recession that was uh, started or triggered in 2008 was uh, quite unique from the one that uh, took place in the, in the uh, 1930s could you uh, possibly track like how we've come from 2000 how we've done since 2008 and uh, you know the extent to which this uh, economic uh, recovery has not been a recovery
2: Yes, and you're right, Michael, when we talked about six months ago, what I was saying when I said we're not really in an economic recovery, the basic problems of the recession of 2008 have not been solved. When I was saying that, I was an outlier. All of a sudden, if you look at the business press right now, you've got bank panics in Europe, uh, people talking about the idea that we might be in a so-called double-dip recession, that is to say falling back into recession, and by the way, much of Europe is in a very deep recession right now. We've got rising unemployment in the United States. The Canadian economy has not grown for several months in a row. And what's becoming clear is that rather than what you would have in a typical recovery, which is that after six, 12 months, the economy really starts to boom again, we have got growing levels of unemployment, growing poverty, businesses aren't investing, We've got weak banks in Europe, and we've got the so-called sovereign debt crises, that is to say the crises of governments. The reason for all of this <clears throat> is that what the central banks around the world did in 2008 and 9 was that they pumped something like about $27 trillion into the bank's and to stimulate the economy in order to
1: prevent a whole collapse of the global economy. Could you give us some idea about what $27 trillion means in real terms? I will, because it's a phenomenal
2: sum. That's the equivalent of taking all the wealth produced in the United States over the period of two years and pumping that into the banks. I mean, for years they told us we couldn't afford national daycare program. We can't afford socialized dental care or pharma care and so on. But lo and behold, when the banks were collapsing, they found money they claimed we didn't have to fund social programs. That's what they did. And it was on, as I say, an unprecedented scale. Imagine taking two times the annual wealth of the entire American economy and pumping into the banks and using it to stimulate the economy. So it's a phenomenal intervention. And it's temporarily stop the banking collapse. The problem is that governments raise money like that by selling debt. They sell government bonds. And private investors, hedge funds, other banks, that's who buys their debt. In other words, you give them money today, you get a debt coupon, which means they owe you money, and you collect interest on it. But of course some of the scale of the bailout was so massive that after a while, investors looked at the numbers and said, we don't think we're gonna get paid back. We don't see how Greece is gonna pay us back or Ireland or Spain or Portugal, whichever the case may be at a moment. A lot of eyes are on Greece at the moment, but there are deep concerns about Italy and so on. But of course, what that means is that we're moving back into another banking crisis. Because the banks that bought the debt of governments now face the possibility that those governments are broke and that some of them will have to default. What other
1: governments besides Greece are, 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 are the markets suggesting uh, that they have no confidence in, uh, uh, that, that they will uh, not default?
2: If you were to go by what the markets are saying, you would have to think that Ireland, Portugal, Spain, even Italy the third largest economy in the euro Euro eurozone, that all of them are potential bankruptcy cases, that is, to say, cases where they might default on their loans. So that's triggering very deep concerns that banks may start to collapse. And yesterday, the International Monetary Fund came out and basically said to four or five European governments, you've got to pump more money into your banks. So essentially, when I tell you that there was a $27 trillion bailout We need to add, and it's not over. The price tag keeps mounting. So in response to that, what governments around the world have declared is a so-called age of austerity. That is to say, deep cuts to social spending, massive layoffs of public employees in order to reduce their spending on social services so they can pay more to the banks. And to just give you a sense of what that means, Latvia has fired one-third of all public employees. Greece has slashed pensions between 30% and 50%. So you thought you had a retirement plan? You paid into it for 30 years? Too bad. You can't retire outside of poverty. The British government says it's going to lay off 400,000 public sector employees, and so on and so on. What we're seeing as a result is that all kinds of economic activities being sucked out of these economies. You can't lay off hundreds of thousands of people and and imagine they're going to keep spending. You can't cut nurses' wages by 20% as the Irish government just did and think they're going to spend as much as they did. And so this has a knock-on effect on all kinds of other businesses who start to hurt because fewer people are working and fewer people are spending. So that the Greek economy, for instance, is contracting by about 6% this year. That's depression kind of contraction. There's no recovery. If you look at the unemployment rate, going into this crisis in Ireland, it was around 5%. The official figure is now 14.5%. And for youth, it's 27%. Spain, the official unemployment rate is over 21%. And for young people, it's 45%. So we're talking about depression level statistics. If you look at the African-American community in the United States, in the 35 largest cities in the US, the unemployment rate for African-Americans is between 30 and 35%. Again, depression level figures. So all of this nonsense that the business media was carrying starting in late 2009 and throughout much of 2010, The crisis is over, we're in a boom, we're in a recovery, the good days are coming back. All that's ringing very, very false and very hollow at the moment. So essentially, if I were to summarize it in response to your question, we've gone from a crisis that began in the real estate sector with so-called mortgage-backed securities. That created a bank crisis for the banks that owned those securities. That's why all five Wall Street investment banks collapsed in 2008, 9 for instance. Uh, Then came the huge bailout. But that bailout may have rescued banks in the short term, but it transferred the center of the crisis onto governments who are now saddled with all this public debt because they bailed out private banks at public expense. Now, a lot of investors are looking at those public debts and going, we don't think these these governments can repay. And that then creates a crisis for those banks who sold them the debt. And own it. So we've got this crisis that keeps it the center of the storm keeps shifting but the storm doesn't go away and that's what I think the mainstream business press doesn't understand. We are talking about a crisis of at least a decade and we're in about year three of it at this point point. and that's why as you know, I've been saying that in addition to the idea that we've been through a great recession, we need to be talking about building a great resistance to this age of austerity.
1: Well, on that subject of of building a resistance, what do you see are the major obstacles at this point? I could imagine, like, like, for one example, I mean, people are relying, your ordinary working class people are relying very heavily on their pension money, which is invested in the market, and they don't want to do anything that's going to compromise. So, I mean, is that you know, what, one of the, the major obstacles to uh, um, you know, a, a true resistance? And, and if so, then h- how do we get past that?
2: Yeah, and what you say is right. Crises like this do generate fear. There's also the ability of the mainstream media to sell a blame-the-victims kind of thing. They tell, say to us, Greece was living beyond its means. Ireland was living beyond its means. Hang on. It was banks that built up all this debt that then turned sour. It wasn't the average person in the society. This was a banking crisis. It wasn't a crisis caused by the person going to the corner store, uh, the person working in factories and offices and so on. So you're right. There's a fear factor. There's a, an ideological Factor the misinformation that the mainstream media disseminates. And those are real obstacles. Having said that, I think we also need to remind ourselves that there has been a lot of anger and resistance. We have seen not only wave after wave of general strikes by unions in Europe. We saw the big upheaval in Wisconsin, where for two weeks the legislature was occupied. Even in southern Ontario as well. In southern Ontario, we got a wave of factory occupations, and right now we're seeing a big anti-cuts movement in Toronto against the new mayor's attempts to massively slash social services. We've seen student upheavals in Britain, youth rebellions that took over city squares in Spain and Greece. We've seen the big upheavals of young people, the unemployed, and workers in northern Africa, Tunisia, and Egypt. And right now, we're watching an enormous social upheaval in Chile, led by students under the banner, our future is not for sale. So I think there are hopeful signs, but you're right. We are going, If we're going to really mount resistance to the age of austerity, we're going to have to uh, address the very understandable fear that a lot of people have for their futures. And we're going to have to be able to develop an alternative critical understanding of what's going on that can counter the mainstream media explanation, which is why the kind of discussion we're having today is so important.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, uh, we're certainly uh, happy to be able to uh, oblige in that regard. That, uh, and we're also very grateful to you, Mr. McNally, for uh, joining us and uh, helping to uh, dissect the, the current uh, economic dilemma that's facing the world today. So thank you very much, well, David. Thank you, Michael, uh,
2: and best of luck with your show. It's really
1: important that uh, the, your kind of activity continues and flourishes. David McNally is the uh, professor of political science at York University.
0: The Ontario provincial election will take place this year on October 6th. Here to discuss that election and some of the issues that are currently shaping the political discussion in Ontario is Herman Rosenfeld. He worked on the line and as an elected union representative at GM, and retired as a national representative in the education department of the Canadian Auto Workers. He is now a writer and political activist based in Toronto, and the current labor columnist for Canadian Dimension. Welcome to Alert Radio, Herman. Thank you very much. So let's start with the party leaders in Ontario. Can you tell us a bit about them? Let's start with Liberal leader Dalton McGuinty.
3: Yes, Liberal uh, Dalton McGuinty has been uh, um, re-elected twice. He elected twice as, a, as, as leader of the Liberal Party, and uh, he comes from a political family. He's uh, of a conservative wing of the Liberals, Ontario Liberals, and uh, uh, he was a lawyer before he was, uh, he was a politician. And uh, he, uh, I guess on a, on a personal level, on a political level, I said he's on the conservative wing. He um, very much is a pro-business guy, and uh, obviously the, they try to straddle all kinds of uh, places, but uh, he he's he's a rather conservative fellow. I'll just leave it at that. I'll so, get back to that. Um, Tim Hudak, who's the head of the Conservative Party, is uh, is his, his first election. He was uh, part of the Mike Harris, a right wing gang that was in power uh, in the mid in, in the late nineteen nineties, in the early part of the two thousands, and uh, he uh, his his wife was uh, was in, in Harris's inner circle, and uh, he's a one trick pony around uh, tax cuts and uh pulling on wedge issues and Andrew Horvath is Horvath is the, is the first uh, their first election as leader of Antari NDP comes from a political and a working class family based in Hamilton which is a uh, used to be an industrial town and uh was a long time stronghold of the NDP
0: So what are some of the issues that are really shaping this election Well
3: um the, I guess the one of the main issues is' there's, there are a number of them the, first of all the election itself isn 't really grasping the, the, the consciousness of people all that much neither like there's debate leaders' debates um, Different candidates have been trying to shape things differently um, the, the, the the liberals are trying to run this stay the course uh, and they're saying that we they will not raise taxes but they will uh, they will increase uh, education and health care in particular they have a um, a um, Two things that they're they're featuring. One is a uh, um, a subsidy to undergraduate students because t- tuition rates have gone up uh, dramatically. And secondly, is uh, um, they started out with this was a um, a program for immigrants Canadian Canadians from immigrant backgrounds who can't get their uh, credentials recognized. A year program, which was a sub- series of subsidies, which would allow them to get Canadian experience. The Conservatives. Of, um, as I mentioned, they've been trying to make tax cuts, the main kind of, the main issue. And in, in parts of Ontario, they, they have some resonance. But in the Toronto, in the main city of Canada, in, of Ontario, Toronto, there's an extreme right-wing mayor who's been c- claiming that they have to make all kinds of cuts because there's gravy in the system, and uh, they haven't been able to find any. So there's like a really huge political swing inside Toronto against the, the right-wing, and HUDAC uh, has made mistakes around that. And secondly, he jumped on the, uh, this uh, credential program of the liberals and has caused, caused a backlash uh, amongst uh, an, a number of uh, uh, communities of color. Uh, the NDP, uh, both, of those, both of the liberals and conservatives are now uh, sort of uh, um, uh, a are, are relatively tied in, in the mid-30s percentage, percentage although when the, the election was called, the conservatives are way out in front. And the NDP, uh, Horvath, is, 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 uh, has been trying to make the issue of affordability uh, um, the main issue, and this this uh, sort of um, appeal to families, but in general, the other issues that she saw so around this affordability, she talked about lowering the percentage HST around gasoline tax, getting rid of it on heating oil and hydro, um, uh, reducing uh, t- redu- reducing uh, um, the tax cuts that uh, that the Liberals had planned. They wanted to go down. Right now, it's 11.5% corporate taxes. They they want to lower it to 10% at the end of 2013 she wants to raise it to 14%. Um around things like uh, job creation she has to a, a, use some of that money as tax credits for corp, for corp companies that hire uh, uh people in full-time jobs and that sort of stuff. Um they they agree they, they they call for increasing the minimum wage and and putting a cola cola on it. Uh and a series of social uh, social changes which are positive in some ways but uh there's nothing really exciting about any of these campaigns at this moment.
0: Do you think it makes much difference which party wins this election?
3: Well, I think most people on a, in the general progressive community uh, and the labor movement particularly want to prevent the conservatives from winning because that would make a difference. They, their main plank is tax cuts, uh, income tax cuts. They won't uh, uh, upload some of the services that communities, municipalities were. Were, uh, are, are, are living with that, uh, that Harris uh, brought in in, in in the early 20, 2000s. And in particular, they're, they're worried that he may actually uh, implement some of the right-wing attacks on public sector unions that, and all unions that, that happened in the United States. So that's the first thing that matters. Uh, the second one is that uh, um, the liberals are, play, are claiming to be the only real alternative to the conservatives, as, as it was in the, in, in, in the federal election, except they, they are close to the Conservatives. It's different. Uh, that would be, it would be a somewhat of a difference, although a lot of people are saying that, that the Liberals would bring in a lot of austerity uh, issues, uh, policies, if they got another majority. Uh, the NDP, I don't think, will be all that fundamentally. Certainly, they'd be much different than the Conservatives. As usual, they're better than the Liberals, but uh, we don't know how they would rule. There are certain issues that they would certainly do differently, but uh... fundamentally that uh... there's their pro their platform still is job creation through private sector um private sector accumulation of uh, they would give them some tax credits and some extension of the social safety net and some protection of it including i might add uh... fifty percent uh... paying fifty percent of the operational cost of transit for cities in ontario policy up uh, um, um... cap their fares for the next four years which is a positive thing uh... but um that's the way I would see it. The NDP would be better, uh, but the liberals are not the conservatives. and that's, what, that's the way I would look at this. It looks as if right now that if the election were held before this debate that it might be a liberal minority and uh, with, with the NDP either uh, acquiesced with some kind of agreement that they made like they did in, uh, in the late 80s or, uh, or some people are saying they'd be part of a coalition. I don't think that would happen. I think it would be more like uh, some kind of informal deal.
0: As one, as one final question, what's been going on on the more social movement or activist kind of side of things lately?
3: Most of the activist left that I know, certainly in Toronto, has been involved in mobilizing around opposing the cuts for Ford. There's been very little interest in the election. However, there are certain candidates running for the NDP in the greater Toronto area that are, are, are veterans of some of these movements like Kathy Crow from the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee, who's running for, the, uh, for a seat in, in Toronto, and Jonah Shine is a member of the of Workers' Assembly who's been involved in this for inaccessible transit campaign. They have in, in included some of those issues in their campaigns for sure. But uh, really there's the, 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 the fight against the cuts in Toronto has, has, has operated that way. But the flip side of that is that it's really served to discredit uh, the Conservatives in, uh, in, the, in the Toronto area, and it means that they probably will be shut out from the, from the downtown Toronto, which uh, because they're wearing the we're worrying the, they're the you know, idea they're going to cut important services to the poor uh, to social movements. But like as I mentioned, most of the social movement people right now have been involved in the in the fight against uh, Ford. And I spoke to somebody involved in in Jonah's campaign, and she said that uh, those issues are being played out in in in, in, uh, in their campaign.
0: Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, Herman, for sharing your insights with us. My
3: pleasure. It's, uh, like I said, it's, I, I think it's really going to take off more. And the other thing that's important, a lot of unions are, are using re- a lot of the resources to actually uh, um, give organizers to the NDP campaign, although some of them are arguing for, uh, for only supporting the ones that they think can win in, in, in a kind of strategic voting. But that's only some unions.
0: Well, we'll see how that turns out on Election Day. Okay. Thank you very much. Alert has been speaking with Herman Rosenfeld, writer and activist and Canadian Dimension Labour Columnist.
1: To discuss with us the election as it's progressing in Manitoba, we're joined on the line by David Camfield, David Camfield is Associate Professor of Labour Studies at the University of Manitoba and author of the recently released book, Canadian Labour in Crisis, Reinventing the Workers' Movement. So welcome to our show, David.
4: Thanks for having me on.
1: Could you maybe tell us uh, what uh, might distinguish this election uh, from uh, previous elections?
4: Well, in fact, I think what's uh, perhaps more notable is the way in which it's not different. Uh, That is, compared to the last provincial election, Uh, The broad parameters of politics in Manitoba are pretty much, I think, the same, um, in that you have uh, a new Democratic Party government seeking re-election, but it's an NDP which has really uh, more or less embraced neoliberalism uh, and has been governing in a way which certainly hasn't uh, caused any great disturbance to, uh, to capital in the province of Manitoba. And on the other hand, you have a conservative party, which is attempting to present itself as an alternative to the NDP, uh, but not one which uh, is willing to put forward and campaign publicly on a very aggressive uh, right-wing agenda, um, but rather it, in fact, has been making promises of various new investments and uh, certainly doesn't want to portray itself uh, as a, a hard-right alternative to uh, to the NDP. And then the Liberal Party is really not much of a player. It's a very minor uh, party in uh, in Manitoba with only one seat in the legislature at present. Uh, And this is all taking place, the election, in a context which is important to understand, and that is a context where the Manitoba economy has been doing uh, much better uh, than the rest of Canada. Unemployment is lower than it is in most other parts of the country, and there's been uh, virtually no social mobilization in terms of uh, social justice organizing, so there certainly hasn't been uh, pressure from the left on uh, the NDP or other other parties. Um, same is true in terms of the labor movement. It's a very quiet situation on the, the labor front and uh, union leadership that uh, has a very non-confrontational approach to the government and is uh, very much, I think, you could say in the back pocket of the, the NDP. So, um, in fact, I think what really strikes me is ways in which this election is similar to uh, the last provincial election. Uh, I think perhaps there's a little more Uh, fatigue, if you like, uh, with the the NDP government, just because they have been in an office uh, since 1999, but that hasn't uh, translated into uh, uh, a real wave that the Conservative Party's been able to exploit. There haven't been... issues that the Tories have been able to really seize on, I think,
1: mm-hmm. to uh, propel
4: themselves forward.
1: Well, then, what are the issues that are driving this election? <laughs>
4: That's a, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, the parties are talking about all sorts of things, but it's very difficult to actually discern what the you know, things that are at the top of people's minds are in terms of the, the population as a whole. Certainly, uh, both the Conservatives and the NDP have been talking a fair bit about health care uh, and the importance of improving the health care system somewhat different prescriptions for that because of course people many people have uh, interactions with the healthcare system and experience its inadequacies in various ways um, that's been an issue um, there's been some discussion uh, around uh, uh, an ecological question and the question of the the building of a new hydro transmission line and which side of uh, Lake Winnipeg is be built down um, with the parties differing on on that question but Although the Conservatives thought they could really use that as an issue to to give themselves a boost in the polls, it doesn't seem to have worked for them. Um, They were portraying the the NDP's choice um, of building down the west side uh, as being more expensive, and so they were hoping they could portray the NDP as spendthrifts on that basis. But um, I think the NDP has uh, fairly successfully countered that, or at least the Tories haven't found that it's an issue that's garnered them a lot of support, although it's certainly I think something that's popular as an issue among their, their base. Most conservative committed uh, supporters. Um, but it, it's, it's, I think, actually a campaign that's really quite lackluster. I, I haven't got the sense that there's a particular issue or set of issues that's really galvanizing a lot of discussion. I think it seems to be a pretty low level of interest overall. And that means, unfortunately, there are real issues in the lives of people living in Manitoba that aren't really reflected very much in this election.
1: Mm. Well, how is the uh, the, the urban rural divide uh, playing out in, as far as this election is concerned, because we've got the, those, the big uh, base in Winnipeg and then there's all those rural ridings
4: right is for people outside of Manitoba, I'll to say that the population of the province is sixty some percent in one place in the city of Winnipeg, so uh, it you know has a very central role in the, in the province. Uh, this division continues to be there where the the conservatives I think have their you know their strong support in rural areas, uh, and the NDP has been very strong in, in Winnipeg for some time. The Conservatives have had some t- difficulty breaking out of uh, their their rural base, and I think they're to some extent seen as the party of rural and smaller town Manitoba, and that's not entirely inaccurate. Um, and the NDP has had some greater success in in the last decade in in rural areas than it had before, but uh, I don't think this is something which is Going to change dramatically. It's it's hard to know because the polls are pretty unreliable and, and so on. But uh, the NDP has, I think, by um, a combination of just good luck, being in office when the regional economy has been doing uh, rather better than most parts of the country, and through its own careful carefully calculated presentation of itself as a moderate, um, socially liberal party, as opposed to the uh, the Conservatives, they've been able to. Uh, you know, gained some seats in more conservative parts of suburban Winnipeg, and so there are some contested battles there in the southern part of Winnipeg, in, in some some ridings uh, where the the Conservatives hope to take back places that they had held in the past. Uh, and there's been some redistribution of, of ridings uh, mm. you know, as a result of uh, the changing population. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, again, I think it's important to understand that the the basic parameters, uh, including this, you know. The in the urban area, and the rural area. That hasn't changed very much in the, the last number of years. Again, Manitoba, for people outside of Manitoba, it's important to understand, has a relatively diversified economy uh, with a very strong, uh, significant public sector uh, base of employment in, in Winnipeg, a number of universities, uh, and uh, then also some manufacturing, uh, manufacturing which is increasingly oriented towards um, markets other than the United States as well as manufacturing that's traditionally been tied into agriculture, uh, as well as having a, a, you know, still a significant rural economy. Uh, another division in the province that's important to understand is that between the south, more urbanized south, and, of course, the very large, much more thinly populated north, uh, where you have a, a very significant indigenous uh, population. Uh, so those p- are parameters which are also relevant to understanding the election, I think.
1: Given the makeup of the two major parties in contention, is there really anything at stake in what appears to be a fairly close race between the two?
4: That's a good question. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think there are things at stake, but uh, I think that the parties, while both committed to neoliberalism, are committed to somewhat different versions of it, and one of them, the Conservatives, is uh, even more open to big businesses. Desires than, than the NDP has been. And so I think a conservative government would probably be more likely to uh, implement uh, significant cutbacks and other kinds of uh, regressive moves than the NDP is. But we should, I, I think it's important to, to uh, be cautious here and not assume that the NDP uh, couldn't do that too. I think, faced with a different economic situation and pressure from business, uh, the NDP is quite capable of making a, a turn further to the right and implementing measures that historically would have been associated with the uh, with the Conservatives. And you know, we can see even just in recent, uh, you know, very recent moves uh, to bring about some small changes to the Employment Standards uh, Act in Manitoba, the, the, the piece of legislation which governs minimum standards for workers, uh, applies to all workers, the only set of rights, really, that non-unionized workers have, uh, the NDP is make, making some small changes there which are quite employer-friendly, um, ones which haven't had a lot of attention. So um, that's being done in relatively better economic times. Uh, we can see that if the economic situation has changed, the NDP be quite capable of making more aggressive um, moves of that kind.
1: Well, David Campfield, I want to thank you very much for uh, that uh, analysis of the provincial uh, campaign in Manitoba. And uh, we'll just have to uh, monitor the uh, how that campaign progresses uh, right up into Election Day. So thank you very much for that contribution, David.
4: Thanks for having me on.
1: And that was David Campfield. He is a professor of labor studies at the University of Manitoba and author of Canadian Labor in Crisis, Reinventing the Workers' Movement.
5: Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And on this week's show, a retrospective of songwriter Tom Lear, professor of mathematics at MIT. He reached out, and he wrote amazing songs about the world as he it. He wrote very political songs and very funny songs, and sometimes he managed to write a very funny political song. So here he is with one of his best songs, Werner von Braun.
6: Around while I sing you a Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmatze, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical, say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown. But some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town, who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero. Once you've learned to count backwards to zero In German or English, I know how to count down And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun You know, every great war produces its great hit songs and after each war we like to gather around the piano or the guitar and play these songs Uh, We enjoy the songs because they remind us of how much we enjoyed the war. Now, World War III is almost upon us, as you know, by uh, popular demand, it seems. And uh, it occurred to me that if any songs are going to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. (laughs) So I have one here. This uh, This is a song that some of the boys will have sung to their mothers as they will have gone bravely off to World War III. There's one reference in here that I should explain. There is a reference to our leading television news commentators, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. I feel that this is appropriate because, as you know, World War III will be the first World War to be seen on television. I certainly hope that we all have color television by then. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb so don't wait up for me. But while you swelter down there in your shelter, you can watch me on your TV. While we're attacking frontally, watch Brinkley and Huntily, describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. Yeah! Little Johnny Jones He was a U.S. pilot And no shrinking violet Was he He was mighty proud When World War III was declared He wasn't scared, no siree And this is what he said On his way to Armageddon So long, Mom I'm off to drop the bomb So don't wait up a commie, so send me a salami and try to smile somehow. I'll look for you when the war is over an hour and a half from now.
5: That was Tom Lear, the So Long Mom, and before that his classic, Bernard von Brown. You know, one of the things about Tom Lear is he arrived at a time when the folk movement was really arriving, and he was very Influential in the folk movement, but he sure liked to make fun of it.
6: We are the folk song army. Every one of us cares. We all hate poverty, war, and injustice, unlike the rest of you squares. There are innocuous folk songs, yeah, but we regard them with scorn The folks who sing them have no social conscience, why? They don't even care if Jimmy cracked corn If you feel dissatisfaction Strum your frustrations away Some people may prefer action But give me a folk song any old day The tune don't have to be clever And it don't matter if you put a couple extra syllables into a line It sounds more ethnic if it ain't good English And it don't even gotta rhyme Excuse me, rhyme Remember the war against Franco That's the kind where each of us belongs Though he may have won all the battles We had all the good songs So join in the folk song army Guitars are the weapons we bring To the fight against poverty, war, and injustice Ready? Aim! Sing! years now, Mr. Danny Kaye, who has been my particular idol since childbirth, has been doing a routine <laughs> a routine about the great Russian director Stanislavski and the secret of success in the acting profession. And I thought it would be interesting to, st- to adapt this idea to the, uh, <laughs> to the uh, field of mathematics. I always like to make explicit the fact that before I went off not too long ago to fight in the trenches. I was a mathematician by profession. I don't like people to get the idea that I have to do this for a living. (laughs) I mean, it isn't as though I had to do this, you know. I could be making, oh, $3,000 a year just teaching. (laughs) Be that as it may, some of you may have had occasion to run into mathematicians and to wonder, therefore, how they got that way. Here in partial explanation, perhaps, is the story of the great Russian mathematician, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. (laughs) Who made me the genius I am today, the mathematician that others all quote? Who's the professor that made me that way, the greatest that ever got chalk on his coat? One man deserves the credit, one man deserves the blame And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name Hey Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky I am never forget the day I first meet the great Lobachevsky In one word he told me secret of success in mathematics Plagiarize
7: yeah. <laughs> Plagiarize
6: Let no one else's work evade your eyes. Remember why the good Lord made your eyes. So don't shade your eyes, but plagiarize, plagiarize, plagiarize. Only be sure always to call it, please, research. (laughs) And ever since I meet this man, my life is not the same. And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hey, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I'll never forget the day I'm given first original paper to write. It was on Analytic and Algebraic Topology of Locally Euclidean Metrization of Infinitely Differentiable Riemannian Manifold. bois je oh. This, I know from nothing. <laughs> but I think of great Lobachevsky and I get idea. Yeah. <laughs> I have
7: a friend in Minsk, who has a friend in Pinsk, whose friend in Omsk has friend in Tomsk, with friend in Akmolinsk. His friend in
6: Alexandrovsk has friend in Petropavlovsk, whose friend somehow is solving now the problem in Yevopetrovsk. And when his work is done, <laughs> begins the fun. From Yevopetrovsk to Petropavlovsk, by way of can to Alexandrovsk to Alexandrovsk to Akmolinsk, to Tomsk, to Omsk, to Pinsk, to Minsk. To me, the news will run. Yes, to me, the news will run. Ah, then I write by morning and night and afternoon, and pretty soon my name in Yevopetrovsky is cursed when he finds out I published first. Ah, And who made me a big success and brought me wealth and fame? Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hey, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I'll never forget the day my first book is published. Every chapter I stole from somewhere else. index I copy from all Vladivostok telephone directory. <laughs> this book, this book was sensational. Pravda, ah, Pravda, Pravda said, Bilka, Ralka, Kedater, Pringham, Blaha, It stinks. <laughs> but Izvestia, Izvestia said, yeah, I do It stinks. <laughs> Metro Gold in Moskva <laughs> bought the movie rights for 6 million rubles changing title to The Eternal Triangle, <laughs> with Brigitte Bardot playing part of <laughs> Hypotenews. <laughs> and who deserves the credit, and who deserves the blame? Nikolai Ivanovich Komachevsky is his name.
5: I always loved that song of Lobachevsky. It's a great chance to practice my Russian accent. And before that, folk song army. One of the things about Lear, of course, is that he was a very serious human being, and he looked at politics in a very, very serious way. And he was very clear about the problems that his own country was creating in the world.
6: someone makes a move of which we don't approve who is it that always intervenes un and oas they have their place i guess but first send the marines we'll send them all we've got john wayne and randolph scott remember those exciting fighting scenes to the shores of tripoli but not to mississippi what do we do we send the marines for might makes right until they've seen the light they've got to be protected all their rights respected till somebody we like can be elected members of the corps all hate the thought of war they'd rather kill them off by peaceful means stop calling it aggression We hate that expression we only want the world to know that we support the status quo they love us everywhere we go so when in doubt send the marines We got the bomb, and that was good, because we love peace and motherhood. Then Russia got the bomb, but that's okay, because the balance of power is maintained that way. Who's next? France got the bomb, but don't you grieve, because they're on our side, I believe. China got the bomb, but have no fears, they can't wipe us out for at least five years. Who's next? Uh, then Indonesia claimed that they Were going to get one any day South Africa wants two, that's right One for the black and one for the white Who's next? Egypt's gonna get one too Just to use on you-know-who So Israel's get. Tense, wants one in self-defense The Lord is our shepherd, says the psalm But just in case, we better get a bomb <laughs> Who's next? Luxembourg is next to go And who knows, maybe Monaco We'll try to stay serene and calm When Alabama gets the bomb Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's
5: next? Who's next? That was Who's Next, and before that, Send the Marines. And now, to finish off the show this week, my favorite Tom Lear song. This song played on radio in 1967, very briefly, and then certain people just forced it off the air. But here it is, Tom Lear with The Vatican Rag.
6: You get down on your knees Fiddle with your rosaries Bow your head with great respect And genuflect, genuflect, genuflect Make do whatever steps you want If you have cleared them with the pot If everybody say his own Kyrie own, Doing the Vatican right Get in line in that processional Step into that small confessional They're the guy who's got religion I'll tell you if your sin's original If it is, try playing it safer Drink the wine and chew the wafer Two, four, six, eight Time to transubstantiate So get down upon your knees Fiddle with your rosaries Bow your head with great respect And genuflect, genuflect, genuflect Make a cross on your abdomen When in Rome do like a Roman Ave Maria Gee, it's good to see you Getting again. sort of dramatic And doing the Vatican rag.
5: That was the Vatican Rag Seven Songs by Tom Lear What a good week See you next week Solidarity
1: Well, that's our show for this week Thanks for being with us We'll be here next week at this time if you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the left, prepared by Ashley Titterton. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Padala. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Amazing.